This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Komsik for Libby Snymer. Awaiting possible approval of the first disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's. I'm excited because we are on the cusp of a breakthrough in Alzheimer's treatment, and this is not a trivial thing. Dr. Sharon Cohen, director of the Toronto Memory Program, will be here to discuss. And then, Kathy Buckworth on being a grandparent in this pandemic. My husband normally works with the downtown bank. He's working from home. He took off over my office. I've got a 27-year-old son living at home because his restaurant in Collingwood closed. I've got two university kids who will be in the fall learning online. I thought it was going to be an empty nester, and I've got them at home. And then my daughter and her husband and baby live just a few minutes away, and I'll be helping them out with uh, child care as well. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Columnist and author Alan Fotheringham, known for decades of biting satirical commentaries about Canadian public figures, has died at his home in Toronto. He was 87. For 27 years, Fotheringham's columns appeared in the prominent last page of Maclean's magazine, where readers often turned to read his take on Canadian news and politics. He also published several books, including a collection of essays called Last Page First and a 2011 memoir, Boy From Nowhere. Now that he's got some free time after managing the pandemic in his state, 62-year-old New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's writing a book, American Crisis, hits shelves October 13th, three weeks before the U.S. election. The book will include leadership advice and take a close look at his relationship with the administration of Donald Trump. Keep Rover away from your marijuana. Vets warn pet owners that weed or edibles have dire consequences for dogs. There's been a 400% increase in phone calls to pet poison control agencies stateside as more states legalize the recreational use of pot. Speaking of pets, adoption rose dramatically during the pandemic to help deal with self-isolation. Well, they don't live there anymore, but they used to, at least on television, which is probably why the house sold for four million. Thank you for being a friend. The house is the one used in the first two seasons of The Golden Girls, and the new owners are apparently not even fans of the TV show. Although the popular series is the story of four women in Miami, all seven seasons were shot at studios in L.A., the 2,900-square-foot home that served as the facade of the Golden Girls' home is located on a quiet residential street in Brentwood, California. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's being called a new era in the treatment of Alzheimer's, a disabling and deadly disease of the brain that affects up to 50 million around the world, with 10 million new cases each year. Current approved treatments do not slow its progression, but Dr. Sharon Cohen, director of the Toronto Memory Program, says that could soon change. 
I'm excited because we are on the cusp of a breakthrough in Alzheimer's treatment, and this is not a trivial thing. Uh, we've had no new drugs approved for Alzheimer's since 2013. That's a long drought. And we're dealing, of course, with a very serious disease that affects so many people around the world. So a breakthrough is important, and uh, we hope uh, by next year, this time next year, to have something much more substantial to offer people. Tell us about this experimental drug. The drug is called aducanumab. Uh, It's a mouthful. It will have a a sexier name, but right now, aducanumab. It is an anti-amyloid drug that has been under development for several years by a big pharma company called Biogen. And aducanumab actually went through all its phases of clinical trial development. And the readout in December of 2019, so just a few months ago, was that this drug was successful in slowing down progression of Alzheimer's disease at its early and mild stages. So somebody who's still functioning fairly independently but has Alzheimer's disease but may still be driving and banking can actually experience up to about 40% slowing of the disease and stay functioning uh, much longer than they have ever been able to before. So this is now hard data from the trial results and has led Biogen to actually submit the drug for a marketing license. It's called the Biologics License Application. Uh, And that submission to the FDA went in July 7th. The FDA responded just a few days ago, August 7th, saying, yes, Biogen, we accept your uh, submission for review, and we will give it priority review, which means a decision as to the approval of aducanumab by the FDA will come as early as February 2021. And of course, other regulators are uh, not to be forgotten, and particularly for us, Health Canada, we expect that Biogen will make a submission to Health Canada in uh, short order. Regulators do speak to each other, but Health Canada makes an independent decision for Canadians as to whether they would have access to the drug. Uh, The timing of uh, Health Canada review is not dependent on the FDA review. Often reviews go on by different regulators simultaneously. So um, you can imagine there's a huge amount of data that was submitted and Biogen's goal was to um, send their submission to the FDA first. But now that they've got their, you know, submission package in order, uh, they don't have to wait for the FDA's decision. How long before this comes to market? And I'm, I'm sure that you're encouraged by what you've read, what you've heard, and you anticipate this getting approval. Yes, no, and I then do. how long? And then how long before it would come to the market? I think that whether it was aducanumab or any other game-changing drug, a disease modifier in Alzheimer's disease, which we haven't had before, um, needs to have lead time for our healthcare system to adapt. So even if the drug's on the market tomorrow, we are not doing a good enough job diagnosing uh, patients um, efficiently and accurately enough to, to prescribe the drug. Uh, and there are some other things that are challenging too. So in terms of how long, once, um, you know, Health Canada or the FDA in this case approves the drug, it would be probably a matter of months um, before it was prescribable. But the, the, 
the lead time to prepare the marketplace for prescribing of the drug really starts now in the expectation that the drug will be approved. So, uh, you know, that, that just allows the, the number of months to shorten so that we've got the, the, um, the mechanisms in place and the resources in place to prescribe. This is a drug that one would receive intravenously every month. So it's different than prescribing a pill. Uh, where you write a prescription and the person may go away for six months. Here you need to have the resources to, number one, diagnose, and number two, have somebody come to a treatment center or perhaps a home infusion visit, uh, depending on what the system allows, uh, on a monthly basis. And there will be some monitoring required uh, through... um, a series of MRI scans, again, whether they're going to be once a year or every six months, we don't know yet. So there are quite a few things that need to be worked out in addition to just getting that approval. The other thing that's exciting but challenging is this is a drug for people who are early in Alzheimer's disease and who have amyloid plaque, the sticky protein, accumulating in their brain. And because this drug targets amyloid and draws it out of the brain, we don't want to make the mistake of giving it to somebody who we think has Alzheimer's, but they end up having no plaque, and then we're targeting something that's not, not even there. So it will probably mean that the drug will be indicated not just for people who are thought to have Alzheimer's, but who actually have had an amyloid test that shows they have plaque in the brain. So how will we do that? We can do that through a PET scan. We can do that through a spinal tap. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had a blood test? And that that is coming, but not yet. But it keeps me excited about the field. What about the cost of this drug? Yeah, great question. I don't know what the cost will be. Um, We're going to have to make the case. I say we as part of the scientific community and an advocate for people with Alzheimer's. But Biogen will have to make the case to payers uh, that... um, that the cost of treating people early in the disease uh, is cost savings, in fact, because people can stay in work and out of long-term care much longer and be functioning members of society. Um, The drug will be expensive. How will it be covered? I don't know, but we've we've dealt with these challenges head-on when it comes to cancer chemotherapy, uh, biologics, for example, in rheumatology, even in diabetes. So there's no reason why we can't you know, deal with this squarely in our seniors and, and those with Alzheimer's, a very serious and costly disease, and it needs to be treated. Dr. Sharon Cohen, Director of the Toronto Memory Program. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. As children prepare to return to school, the children aren't the only ones who are nervous. So are their parents and grandparents and or caregivers. Six-time award-winning author and spokesperson on parenting and now grandparenting, Kathy Buckworth. In terms of parents and grandparents, we're all trying to sort of rally together to see what we can do to support the kids. And we're going to have some situations evolving where grandparents who previously might have been in the household bubble now might have to leave because of health and safety concerns or grandparents who stay in the bubble because the kids are learning from just inside the house, remote learning, or a mixture thereof. So I think everyone's trying to find out how they can best adapt to what's going on. Um, So I've been talking to a lot of grandparents about what we can do to really support 
our kids. If we're inside the bubble, of course, it's much easier in terms of helping with homework, family meals, you know, doing safe drop-off and pick-up kids because kids might not be comfortable going on the bus, walking to school for the first time. I've also been, you know, encouraging uh, grandparents to think about taking on the role of field trip supervisor because schools won't be doing field trips. Uh, but there are lots of great places you can still safely go to, like museums, et cetera. So lots to be involved with inside of the bubble. Uh, outside the bubble, whether you've been in or out before, hopefully things like still socially distanced visiting, you know, doing puzzles and games, reading with the kids, uh, particularly if you have maybe a tween or a teen grandchild or child that you can read along a novel with and have those discussions, dropping off family meals. Anyway, we can do to help this transition because while Kids are grappling with in-school, out-of-school. A lot of parents are working from home as well or having to go into the office. So lots of combinations to work through here. Less anxiety now, Kathy, than, say, just a, a few months ago as the economies, various economies across the country are slowly, gradually reopening? Yes, I think so, because I think we were all sort of hopeful at the beginning of the summer that the school situation might be sort of sorted out more or less in terms of regulations and expectations, as well as thinking if we'd had to take time off work, or perhaps there's teachers out there as well thinking, well, when I go back to work, at least I know my kids are taken care of. So that's not the case, as we know a lot of parents are heading back into their workplace, but without, you know, childcare at home or worrying about the childcare that they might have in place, or what's the school day going to be like? There's no after-school programs. So I think, as I said, sort of off the start, I think there's a bit of uneasiness around how it's actually going to roll out. And as with this whole COVID situation, it's day by day at this point. Less pressure now, wouldn't you agree, Kathy, than just a few months ago, given the fact that it looks like moving forward, many more parents will be working at home more, maybe not as much as they they have been right now. They'll be gradually going back, or maybe the workplace will allow them to stay home more than having to go into work. So they'll be able to, to be home. Granted, they still have work to do, but at least they can help support a caregiver, a grandparent, a grandparent. Mm-hmm. So there is a little less pressure on the overall family dynamic. I think so. I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, that employers are very understanding in terms of, you know, allowing where they can employ employees to work from home and the employees are well adapted to it now. I would imagine in most cases we've all been through like, where do we work in the house? Do we have the right Wi-Fi? What are we doing with the kids if they're making a lot of noise? Who can help me, you know, out with that situation? Um, so I think we're, we've adapted really well to the work at home situation at both employers as well as employees. So hopefully that does take a little pressure off. And honestly, we're all in this together. It's not like someone has, you know, some unique world event going on just to them. If there's a second wave, we're all dealing with the second wave. And at this point, I think we're pretty educated in terms of how we can best make that happen. It's difficult for many, many families, but I think we're much better equipped to do that than we were at the start of this in March. As you point out, we're all in this together, and that has to include the employers, obviously. Some might have the luxury of being able to pay for that child care if they mm-hmm. don't have a family member or family members helping out. So they have that luxury of being able to have that covered, as it were, whereas their employees probably right. don't. Exactly. And and that's where it gets a bit tricky, I think. And I know in my case, I have a nine-month-old grandson. Um, my work normally makes me travel a lot. Obviously, I'm not doing that right now. Um, so I'm able to take the time that when my daughter goes back after her mat leave in a couple of months to take on some of the child care for my grandson. We are in the same bubble together. He 
she's not out at school, obviously, at that young age, but she had to obviously readjust her child care plan for that. And I think that's what we're seeing across the board is everybody is looking at their plans and saying, does it still work? And what am I comfortable with? So, you know, it, it, it's a lot of moving pieces right now for a lot of people. And I think we all just have to not judge what other people are doing in terms of sending their kids back to school, in terms of, you know, maybe taking a leave from their work if they can, in terms of, you know, the, the changes we have to make to support our own families. Kathy, you mentioned you're a, a grandmother. How are you finding it? Um, right now, well, I'm uh, I'm adjusting a few other things to my husband who normally works with the downtown bank. He's working from home. He took over my office. I've got a 27-year-old son living at home because his restaurant in Collingwood closed. I've got two university kids who will be in the fall learning online. I thought it was going to be an empty nester, and I've got them at home. And then my daughter and her husband and baby live just a few minutes away, and I'll be helping them out with uh, child care as well. So all of us are making different adjustments and helping each other out where we can. I'm doing this interview. My daughter went over to watch her nephew while I was doing this. I'm not even actually watching my grandson right now because of this. So circumstances change every day in terms of what, you know, we have to adjust to. And we sort of have to just go with the flow. It's hard. All of us are planners and we don't know what's on the schedule for the next, you know, week, let alone hour sometimes. Kathy, given what you just explained you're involved with just in your household, I didn't even hear a ball drop. You're doing a pretty good job juggling everything you just said. <laughs> They're quiet right now. Good thing our Wi-Fi is working. That's all I can say. Because that's what that's we all need to get on with things. So, yeah, it's, it was a lot. We had my daughter and her husband and the baby living with us at the beginning of this for a couple of months also. So there was nine of us in here. And it got a little, got a little crazy sometimes. We got through it. And, and so now we're moving into the next phase like a lot of people. Good luck. Thank you. Six-time award-winning author, parenting and now grandparenting spokesperson, Kathy Buckworth. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer, and thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.